Sabbath. Welcome, my friends, to the Moon Jockeys Podcast, <laughs> an in-depth discussion of Star Wars themes, characters, and storylines. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to another episode of Moon Jockeys Podcast. My name is Brian, your host. You may know our guest today from his work on Full of Sith. How are you doing today, Brian? Uh, I'm doing really well. Uh, just uh, excited to talk about some Star Wars. That's awesome. I'm so excited. I was able to finally get you, and uh, it's a pleasure because I harass you all the time anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's fine. <laughs> so tonight we're going to be talking about the themes of Rogue One. Um, and we had a couple poll questions uh, for this week. Would you want to go over those answers with me? Sure. Absolutely. Anything you'd like. Okay. The first question was, what is your favorite scene in Rogue One? And the options we gave was, let them pass, Galen's message, transmission received, uh, and then the final scene Hope with Vader. And the results of the poll question, transmission received, got 60% of the votes. Of those, which do you think is your favorite scene? Um, wow, I really love Galen's message. I think that's a really powerful scene where you're cutting the uh, destruction of Jeddah City against this really message of of hope mm -hmm. um i think of those listed that would probably be my favorite of those um my favorite scene in the movie though is the one where Jin confronts cassian after edu and he kind of confesses that he's been in that fight since he was six years old what do you love about that scene um there's so much intensity to it and there's so much understanding amongst the characters like everyone in star wars sort of has their own life they've led and it's they've all been lives of misery because of the empire but Jin got so wrapped up in how unfair her life was that she never really thought to consider that other people might have had it just as bad as she did and cassian really throws it into her face and they're both, neither of them are wrong in that situation either. They both absolutely have reasons to be upset at each other. And I just love how the two of them play that against each other. Yeah, it's great that they actually take time to have a conversation and hash that out uh, to slow down a little bit in the plot. Um, because you do get that conflict in the personal stories coming together in a, in a great way in that scene. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, definitely. I think my favorite scene is probably the transmission received. It's just a moment of score that's just so beautiful, and you see how so many things come together to accomplish the mission of transmitting the Death Star plans. And yeah. it, it gives such a great feeling of hope. I think that that's something yeah. that this movie does better than anything else in the saga. So, The shield is up. Your signal will never reach the rebel base. All your ships in here will be destroyed. I lose nothing but time. You, on the other hand, die with the rebellion. Transmission from Scarif. Leave it. Leave it. That's it. 
transmission received. Admiral, we have the plans! She did it! You think anybody's listening? Detecting a massive object emerging from hyperspace. Sir, shall I begin targeting their fleet? Lord Vader will handle the fleet. Target the base at Scarif. Single reactor ignition. Yes, sir. The end of Last Jedi kind of gives it a, a run for its money on the, the the leaving with that notion of hope. But uh, no, I love that that piece of music that uh, your father would be proud. I think is one of the best pieces of Star Wars music ever. Yeah, um, it's easily like top ten. I don't know how you could rate that stuff. And you know me well enough to know I don't like rating stuff, but. Your father would be proud is is up there on whatever list if you're going to make one. Yeah, it's just so beautiful. The next poll we had was uh, which death gave you the greatest feeling of loss? And the options I gave was Galen, K2SO, Chirrut, or Jin and Cassian's death at the end. And the winner of this poll uh, was K2SO with 50%. Which one of those do you think hit you the hardest um they all hit me pretty hard but as i watched it again in preparation to do the show because um i'll i'm the sort of person who looks for any excuse to watch a star wars movie (laughs) um jen and cassians does right with her wide-eyed watching the the explosion come near them and then consume the two of them um as they embrace uh it's it's beautiful and it's touching and you know, talking about the themes of Rogue One, these two, more than anyone, have given up literally everything to make the galaxy that they will never see a better place. And they know it, and they're at peace with it. Everyone else sort of went out in a way where they didn't really get to see that through. Yeah. But they did, and they they were able to take that moment and reflect. Uh before their their ending and i think that's what made it more powerful yeah i think the feeling the knowledge that they actually accomplished the missions in transmitting the plans gave them a lot more peace of the sacrifice that they had to do um the, it's such a great line when cassian asks do you think anyone's listening uh, and we know that the answer is yes <laughs> yeah it's a great moment well, and that's and that's the thing too. That line specifically tells you, as the audience, that they've come to terms with knowing that they've done everything they can, even if they don't, even if they don't know for sure that they've accomplished the mission. Yeah. Now I'd like to transition in and talking about the themes of Rogue One. Um, when we were first told about Rogue One at Celebration Anaheim, there was a panel where they sort of gave the name and the brief synopsis and there was an interview with gareth edwards carrie hart and kathleen kennedy and it was totally void of the jedi because he wanted to show a picture where the normal people of the galaxy had to solve 
epic problems. Uh, and he wanted to put the, the war back in Star Wars. Uh, so he had a lot of input from creative people from um, Zero Dark Thirty, Black Hawk Down, and Saving Private Ryan so that it would have that feeling of an epic war movie. They They told us that it would have no Jedi, but I think that there's a major theme in this movie. Trust the Force. And it's something that Lyra says when she gives her the kyber crystal. We've learned through Forces of Destiny that it is etched in the kyber crystal. And I think that that's a really powerful theme that has kind of been in contrast to Fear is the Path of the Dark Side. What do you think about that? Um, well, I think both of those sort of um, bits of philosophy are both important and endemic to Star Wars across its... Uh, across the entirety of the saga if you look at um if you look at the film as as trusting in the force it's something the galaxy hasn't had in a long time right i mean this is why you've got the church of the force sort of quietly collecting the history and the true stories of the jedi because we know that the empire sort of wiped their memory out with propaganda and you've got little bits of people here and there pockets of them with uh the guardians of the wills like Chirrut and Bays, sort of maintaining that flag. And again, like I, I look at rogue one and I look at the last Jedi and I see, um, very similar themes, right? These people from the church of the force, these guys like the guardians of the wills, Jin, um, Lyra Urso carry that spark of hope with them. And that is the spark that lit the fire that destroyed the empire. And I think Rogue One is full of that kind of thing. And in a galaxy where the Force is very we real and has a will of its own, um, it's really exciting to see that leaned into by the people who, who maybe can't wield the Force, but can definitely be wield wielded by it. You see that definitely in Chirrut. I think he's one of the best characters created in Rogue One. Um, and he was kind of created late later on in the the screenwriting process I believe. yeah that was after gary Witta left yeah um chris weiss um i think created chirrut bays and added them as a an extra member of the team mm -hmm. and when he walks out to flip the master switch you see how much trust he has in being an instrument of the force to accomplish the mission and it's just he's kind of bold but at the same time um you can see what how it weighs on him a little bit you know yeah no but he's but he comes to be at peace with it and that scene between he and bays where bays sort of cradles him and uh you know he, he kind of gives that ending coda uh you know that that he'll always be there in the force yeah um it's really just wonderful and Cheer kind of spurs on base to kind of refine his faith where he does the opposite of the force is with me. I'm one with the force. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of cool. I think you'll find this next theme interesting. I think Rogue One has a theme of a call to care for the cause. I think that that's explained in the conversation between Saw and Jin. You can stand to see the Imperial flag rain across the galaxy it's not a problem if you don't look up yeah and to fight for those that can't fight for themselves and to fight tyranny is i think a big theme for this movie do you would you agree yeah i mean that's that's i that's a theme through all of star wars right even in the prequels where you don't even know what that tyranny looks like or how it will come but if you don't remain steadfast against it you'll have a demagogue uh sort of as legitimately as possible brought into the top slot. Um, so I think that, that that fight against tyranny is endemic to all of Star Wars. Um, it'll be interesting to see how Solo plays with that because as far as I can tell, this is more of a heist than a fight against the Empire sort of movie. Um, but with... Rogue One, again, like the time period really lends itself 
to that reawakening of people. You know, they've been beat down so long by this tyranny. And Jin is an average sort of person in that galaxy where, yeah, she doesn't want to look up. It's not a problem. It doesn't matter what flags fly. But she never knew the galaxy without the tyranny of the Empire, really. So that's why people like Baze had to ignite that spark in her to say, like, it didn't used to be like this. And I think it's I think it's really powerful. Do you think she feels disenfranchised that uh, the good guys and the bad guys are sort of like DJ, where they're both made up and hardened by the the process where she doesn't have hope in one of them actually winning? Um, I think... Jin is sort of like, I think Jin harbors a lot more hatred for the Empire than she does cynicism for the Rebellion. If you go back and look at the Saw Gerrera episodes of uh, Rebels, you can see that Saw didn't necessarily disagree with the Rebels as an idea, but how they went about things. And Jin's, um, Jin's emotional conflict comes from a being raised by saw and sharing a lot of his political values, but also the sting of being abandoned as a child or thinking she'd been abandoned as a child and harboring that ill will against the empire. I don't think there was any ever any chance that maybe she would have joined the empire instead because she thought both sides were, were similar. I think it just took, um, a lot of coaxing to remind her why she should care and why she should help others. So what do you think changes in her to make her choose to make that fight? Well, if you notice, the change happens very specifically during Galen's message when she realizes that her dad wasn't just an, a tool of the Empire. So, if you are watching this, then perhaps there's a chance to save the Alliance. Perhaps there's a chance to explain myself, and though I don't dare hope for too much, a chance for Jen, if she's alive, if you can possibly find her, to let her know that my love for her has never faded, and how desperately I've missed her. Jen, my stardust, I can't imagine what you think of me. When I was taken, I faced some bitter truths. I was told that soon enough Krennic would have you as well. As time went by, I knew that you were either dead or so well hidden that he would never find you. I knew if I refused to work, if I took my own life, it would only be a matter of time before Krennic realized he no longer needed me to complete the project. So I did the one thing nobody expected. I lied. I learned to lie. I played the part of a beaten man resigned to the sanctuary of his work. I made myself indispensable, and all the while, I laid the groundwork of my revenge. We call it the Death Star. There is no better name, and the day is coming soon when it will be unleashed. I've placed a weakness deep within the system, a flaw so small and powerful they will never find it. But Jin, Jin, if you're listening, my beloved, so much of my life has been wasted. I try to think of you only in the moments when I'm strong because the pain of not having you with me, your mother, our family, the pain of that loss is so overwhelming I risk failing even now. It's just so hard not to think of you. Think of where you are. My stardust. So, the reactor module, that's the key. That's the place I've laid my trap. It's well hidden and unstable. One blast to any part of it will destroy the entire station. You'll need the plans, the structural plans for the Death Star to find the reactor. I know there's a complete engineering archive in the data vault at the Citadel Tower on Scarif. Any pressurized explosion to the reactor module will set off a chain reaction that will destroy the entire station. His words to her as a child were actually true, where she'd spent the rest of her life to that point thinking that he was a liar. But when he um, but when he says flat out, you know, like, remember, everything I do, I do it for you. Mm -hmm. And then when she finally sees the message and realizes that he wasn't lying to her the whole time and that and that 
that love that she had for him could be there again and it kind of broke inside her like a dam. That's the thing where she remembers that, like, my dad gave me up. My dad loved me more than anything. And he gave me up to fight this. I have to fight this, too. I think she finally realizes what threat the Death Star could be um, through in that message as well. And that's kind of reflected in her speech to the Rebel Alliance on Yavin. When she asks, what choice do we have in the end of the day when they have a weapon like this, we're all going to be doomed um, if we don't fight it to destroy it. So, like, I, I I think she's finally convinced that the threat of the Death Star is too much that you have to to destroy it. If the Empire has this kind of power, what chance do we have? What chance do we have? The question is what choice? Run, hide. Plead for mercy, scatter your forces. You give way to an enemy this evil with this much power, and you condemn the galaxy to an eternity of submission. The time to fight is now. Yes. Every moment you waste is another step closer to the ashes of Jeddah. What is she proposing? Just let the girl speak. Send your best troops to Scarif. Send the rebel fleet if you have to. You need to capture the Death Star plans if there's any hope of destroying it. You're asking us to invade an Imperial installation based on nothing but hope. Rebellions are built on hope. And then we see a small band of soldiers step forward to answer Jin's call. In the hangar, when Baze asks, How many do we need? Yeah. She gives another talk while they're on the shuttle that um, they're basically just going to take the next step and the next step one by one until all... The steps are spent or until they accomplish their mission, and that kind of plays out the rest of the movie. Movie, do you, you know what I mean? Where yeah, each one kind of takes it another step further. Yeah, and that's something I love too. Um, and it's really um, well conceived in the screenwriting is that they reduce the group, the core group, the Rogue Squadron, down one by one. Uh, every single time um, they've accomplished the most they can in the mission, that's when they die. So, like, as soon as they don't need computer help, K2 is out. As soon as they get the communications message through, uh, you know, Bodhi's out. As soon as the, the switch is flipped, Chirrut is out. As soon as... Um, Baze can take out the Death Troopers, he's out. As soon as the message is sent, Jin and Cassian are out. And then it's left to everyone else to pick up the pieces from where they left. I do think that that's a brilliant way to focus the story um, in that third act because basically you're just focused on the, the Death Star plans themselves and them getting from Scarif up to the Rebel Alliance and you don't have to worry about the other actors that you've been getting to know in the rest of the movie uh, because they have perished. So I think we re recently learned that Tony Gilroy is largely responsible for that in focusing the storyline of the third act. Um, um, I don't think that that was, I don't think that's new information. I think we've known that since before the movie came out and that um, a little bit of the first act and a lot of the third act was reshaped by him in the editing room and in the reshoots. Yeah. He, he just recently, well, there, there was the podcast where he talked about how he, he sort of focused the story, which is what yeah. I was referring to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, but I mean like, that's not, it's not new, new news new. is all. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Do you want to talk a little bit about the theme of sacrificing for the cause? Um, well, I think that that's something that being willing to sacrifice yourself for the cause, again, is something that we see play out in Star Wars, right? Constantly, whether that's Qui-Gon sacrificing himself uh, to make sure Anakin can get trained and uh, that the Naboo are safe, that Obi-Wan sacrifices himself for Han and Luke and Leia to get off the Death Star with the Death Star plans, to see Han sacrifice himself 
to try to bring some humanity back to his son and to see Luke sacrifice his life so that the resistance can live. Um, those themes of sacrifice are um, part of that mythic sort of hero's journey that we hear about all the time. And it's something that's almost required in, um, in, in this sort of storytelling. And so uh, seeing it in Rogue One is not a surprise, but I think there's something very powerful, especially in this day and age, to see a group of people willing to sacrifice their lives, like I said earlier, for that world to be for that world they'll never see to be better. Um, it's a very powerful message. Do you think Cassian sacrifices his morality in what he does for the Rebel Alliance? Um... Oh yeah, absolutely. When he shoots his informant at the beginning of the film, um, there's no way to read that other than he's sacrificed it, especially with that brief look where he, he knows this is bad. He shouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. And you kind of feel that in his response to Jin. I'd like to volunteer. Some of us, most of us, we've all done terrible things on behalf of the rebellion. Spies, saboteurs, Assassins. Everything I did, I did for the rebellion. And every time I walked away from something I wanted to forget, I told myself it was for a cause that I believed in. A cause that was worth it. Without that, we're lost. Everything we've done would have been for nothing. face myself if I give up now. None of us could. Yeah. I think that, that those sacrifices have weighed on him a lot, which is why he he kind of throws it in her face that he's been fighting since he was six years old. And what that that fight has done to him, like if they don't actually make a difference and accomplish something big to fight the tyranny, then all the sacrifices that he's done mean nothing, and it's it's just a bad bad choice, I guess. But that's what's so great about that folding back together with him being at peace with those sacrifices when he thinks that they might have got the message out at the end, right? He goes there because he doesn't want those sacrifices to be in vain, but comes to terms with that by the end in case that message didn't make it out. Yeah. And then I think that Bodhi Rook also felt something similar in being a Imperial transport where he wanted to do something to kind of redeem himself, um, which is how he became a carrier for Galen's message, because Galen told him that he can make a difference, and that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's part of the other thing that helped click that thing in Jin's brain, was watching how her father inspired this guy. This guy was a dedicated Imperial, and her father was able to turn him, and he wouldn't have been able to do that had he not been um, the hero that she wanted to believe but never let herself believe he was. This movie is so great, and <laughs> it's amazing how it started from just a simple idea based on this, the crawl of A New Hope and has developed into the film that we got because there were a lot of bumps on along the road, but it's kind of a better movie for it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no. And that's why I'm always so surprised by how people kind of give, um, this movie or the way we've, we've had any of the star Wars movies come out where there's consternation over like reshoots. Is it going to be good? Is it going to be that, um, whatever process they're doing to give us the films they're giving is, is, is working. And uh, I won't complain about their process. And we've got just over a month to find out if it worked again with Solo. But I, it, based on the looks of everything so far, it looks like we, we, we are getting that. Do you think that it's a good thing that they, um, since it was a movie 
quote unquote without Jedi, that they they had it take place on one of the most sacred or holy force connected locations in the galaxy, like creating Jeddah and Jeddah City, and then creating the backstory of that this is the place that Jedi would basically have a a pilgrimage to get their kyber crystal. Um, do you think that that's a wise thing to bring the force back into the movie? Yeah. Um, I think that there's a couple reasons for it. One is they've been setting up from, uh, from George's ideas that kyber crystals are, um, purposely what you need to get the death star laser, right? Yeah. So they were going to have to deal with kyber crystals no matter what. And we did see in the Ahsoka novel that they strip-mined Ilum for them. Um, so making them such a, a key part of the Death Star was something they didn't really have any control over. So when you sit down and look at how to break the story down, um, I think it would have been a, mis- a mistake not to because it would have broken so much in the continuity. That's already been coming around since... Um, the Crystal Crisis episodes of the uh, Lost Missions in For the Clone Wars. Uh, yeah, on Utapau. And then doubling down on that in Rebels uh, as they've been intercepting these little shipments of kyber crystals here and there until they finally... Um, I think they do that... They've dis- they destroy two of those giant kyber crystals away from the Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, can, I, I almost wish I could have gotten scenes of Krennic in the rebels style being upset about that. <laughs> Hollywood have loved that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you like the designs of um Vader's uh castle on Mustafar and the uh I think it's called the Temple of Hope or Temple of Kyber? I Jedi City. I really do love the similarities between those designs. Um and I really love that they keep going back to the roots of Ralph McQuarrie, right? Both those designs came almost directly from Ralph McQuarrie. In fact, Vader's castle was a sketch. Um, I don't know if you've read the original Lee Brackett draft of Empire Strikes Back, but Vader's castle was a very key location. Mm-hmm. And so Ralph McQuarrie on his first pass made a bunch of sketches and one of the little sort of back of the envelope size sketches that he made was Vader's castle. And that was essentially what we got with Rogue One. Mm -hmm. And so to see um, the Jedi temples always be inverted with um, the Sith temples and to see Sith temples inverted with light side temples back and forth where we had you know, the Lothal temple versus the temple on Malachor and to see Vader's versus the, the temple on Jeddah. I think it's just a really great visual symmetry that they've been weaving throughout the saga, um, in this new era very well. I think that they're getting to a point where they're going to basically try to destroy the paradigm of good and evil, um, light side and dark side. To the point where there's just one force, um, and it has basically attributes of the light and the dark together. Um, be- I mean, I disagree vehemently, but <laughs> please continue. <laughs> really? Yeah. I, I think that they're going to talk that there's one force. and um, But we've already got Bendu talking about how there are very different aspects of the Force, where you have the Ashla, which is the light side of the Force the Jedi tap into, um, which is also what the Lasan tap into, or the Lasat tap into, and you've got the Bogan, which is that dark side of the Force. And you have people in the story group very adamantly sort of um, saying that you can't really mix both sides because one is inherently selfless and one is inherently selfish mm-hmm. and you can't mix those two things because they cancel each other out and then you have nothing. Right. But so I don't think they can do that. It's hard to explain. Like, um, I, I don't think you can do both at the same time, but I think that there are times when each has its merit. Um, like, like, I haven't... When, okay, go ahead. When Ray talks about that there's basically a cycle of life and 
there's the light that gives life and the light, um, the dark side that, that, uh, basically takes life that, that it's, it's a natural course of life that you have the light and the dark and they work together to bring about the will of the force. I would say that that cycle of, of violence behind life and death, um, I think Yoda's accurate when he says that death is a natural part of life and that death, although it might seem violent, is actually inherent in the light side. And that the dark side is only apparent when you're trying to bend that to your own selfish will. And that, you know, it's it's of the dark side to harm or attack or act aggressively to someone else. It's part of the light side to let nature take its course. Yeah. No matter how violent yeah, no matter how violent that course might be. To bring it back to Rogue One, I do think it's kind of cool that the two Vader's castle um and the Temple of Kyber are basically tuning forks to tune into the the light side or the dark side of the force. Um I mean, uh Doug Chang talked about that on Full Sith with you guys. Yeah, I really like that idea, and that interview was a lot of fun. Like, it, he's just a great guy to talk to. Yeah, it it was pretty amazing. Like, he's done so much for the prequels and now the sequels and the stand the anthology movies. The um last theme I wanted to talk about today uh was the torch of hope in Rogue One, and I think that that starts a little bit with uh, Cassian Endor telling Jen that rebellions are built on hope, and that's something mm-hmm. that she kind of carries on in her speech to the Rebel Alliance. And it builds yeah. with Galen's uh, message to her where she finds out that there's hope to, against the Death Star. And I think, um, I think it actually has a root, too, in... In Clone Wars, right, you hear Jin echoing the same things that Ahsoka and the Jedi taught Saw, that he taught her. You know, that that one fighter with a sharp stick can win the day. Like, that, that sort of message of hope mm-hmm. is a spark that started with the Jedi on Onderon. Saw Gerrera used to say, one fighter with a sharp stick, nothing left to lose can take the day. They've no idea we're coming. They've no reason to expect us. If we can make it to the ground, we'll take the next chance. And the next. On and on until we win. Or the chances are spent. That's kind of cool to see it come back to the Clone Wars. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a direct callback to those episodes. The final scene of Hope aboard Radis's ship is with Vader in the hallway is probably my favorite scene in the movie. Um, because at this point, all the crew of Rogue One have sacrificed their lives to get the Death Star plans off of Scarif. And they've been transmitted up to the ship, but now they have to be given to Leia to carry these on to Obi-Wan. And if you've ever been a leader at work or in any kind of organization, it's hard enough to get volunteers to accomplish the things that you want to do. It's another thing entirely to get others to take ownership of a vision and to carry that vision on without you. So to see these soldiers sacrifice their own lives is a huge thing. That moment where that uh, rebel realizes he's not getting out of it and instead of trying to beg to get through, just hands the 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 data tape or the the transmission through the door and just says, "Take it, take it." Um, I think that's one of the most powerful moments in the movie, and you don't even know that guy's name. It's David Collins, but <laughs> well, no, I mean, you, it's David Collins speaking, but it wasn't like him acting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a great scene. I love it so much. Um, and then you also get to see some of the coolest Vader ever <laughs> when he just basically rips the guns out of their hands and just starts. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. No, I, it's, it is a really great scene. 
do you um have any uh other things about hope you'd like to talk about well i think i i i think the thing i love about rogue one is i think about it in context of last jedi and last jedi is still just fresh in my head i mean we're only four months away from it but that spark of hope is really what spawned a movie like this right this mission these people every hero in that hit that spark of hope that that came indirectly from one way or one way or another from the Jedi or a hero inspired by the Jedi so they said there's no Jedi in it but the hope the Jedi had is filled in that movie to the brim and then you have um, and and then you have last Jedi end where it does and you can only imagine what movies like this wait for us in that space between episode eight and episode nine of those sorts of people uh, and those kids inspired by Luke. Yeah. Um, I think that's really powerful. It would be great to see. I'm hoping that we get a time jump in between eight and nine so that we can have more stories to tell of rebuilding the rebellion and Ray starting to pass on what she's learned and to continue with her training. I think that that will be pretty awesome. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think there kind of has to be just by the, the, the fact of Carrie Fisher's loss and the way they left it. There's, um, and, and just JJ Abrams style of storytelling, right? There's going to be the first 10 minutes of that movie where we're wondering what in the hell has happened between the, the landing of the last one and now. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's just so much to tell, and it'll be fun to to see where it goes. Um, yeah. So we're getting a new trailer tonight, a little behind the curtain. We're recording this on Sunday before the trailer is released. What are you hoping to see? Um, I'm hoping to see the Millennium Falcon do some cool stuff. Uh, I'm hoping to get another little taste of the story and um, more Therm Scissor Punch. <laughs> do you love that name? I really do. It's it's so silly. It's up there with like Yak Face and Snaggletooth and and uh, Elon Sleazebagano and <laughs> yeah. Droopy McCool. Like Droopy McCool didn't break anything. How is Therm Scissor Punch? It's just, it, it's a pretty cool name, especially with this claw. <laughs> Um, are there any characters that you have locked on to for solo yet? Um, other than you know, Therm, I I think Therm's the big one at this point. No, I I don't know. I mean, like, I'm just I'm really excited for Han. Actually, I think Alden Ironreich is great, yeah. and watching some interviews with him come from the European press tour that they've already started have been, um it's been like fun to watch him. It looks like he had a lot of fun and he's really excited about the movie. I haven't seen any interviews yet. I'll have to try to find those. Yeah. The ones I found, they got, they were getting posted to Twitter yesterday, but then they're all, they all got mysteriously deleted. So I'm not sure where to find them again, but I will. Okay. I'm kind of excited for all the characters except for Han right now. Still, Hopefully this trailer will change that a little bit. Um, but I think Kira is probably the one I'm looking forward to the most. What is it about Han you're not looking forward to? Uh, I just... I'm not trusting that he'll... Uh, he'll be able to capture everything for Han for me yet. But I don't know well, Alden's work as very much, so... Well, you got to remember, too, that it would be like asking Sean Patrick Flannery or River Phoenix to capture everything about Indiana Jones. He's just they're just they weren't at that time of his life yet that we knew him. Right. This right. is 10 years before. Um, so. You know, like we're going to get sort of a proto Han. So he's not going to deliver everything you might expect out of Han Solo because he's not that Han Solo yet. Like, I hope that there's growth in this one. Uh, I hope that there's a moment where 
either Beckett or Kira dies basically because they don't shoot first. Um, to kind of be a moment of grief where he has to learn that lesson where you kind of do shoot first if you're being held at gunpoint. Um, so, like, we'll see if that happens or not. But I'm hoping that there's some kind of arc where he learns a lesson because of his relationship with Beckett and Kira. Yeah. No, I think uh, I think that, that, that he's definitely going to learn a lesson somewhere and he's going to um, find that maybe he has that heart of gold a little sooner, but he doesn't necessarily know what to do with it and it always gets him into trouble. Yeah. Yeah, that would be good. And I think Lando will be super cool. And yeah. the Millennium Falcon looks so beautiful. Like, I don't know how it got so dirty. <laughs> I It could be another ship, right? It could be a different ship. You know, wouldn't it be hilarious if uh, it turned out, and this is just me speculating, I have no evidence to believe this, and it would be silly. But Lando loses the Falcon to him, but doesn't actually give him the Falcon. Gives him, like, the Falcon that we know not necessarily the Falcon that Lando has, hmm. that really clean one, and uh, which would make the what have you done to my ship a lot funnier if that wasn't actually ever his ship. <laughs> but who knows? Yeah. Cool. Well, um, Brian, I'd really like to thank you for coming on and talking to me about Rogue One and stuff. Um, it's always fun I enjoy our conversations. You're one of the people I enjoy arguing with the most. Or, <laughs> well, I hope I don't make it. Too, I hope I don't make it too difficult. You don't at all. Um, and you always take it very well and give it back just as much. But that's kind of what I like. Um, where can people find you online? Um, if you want to, you can find me um, on Twitter at Swankmatron, um, and that's that's kind of where I do. Aside from the Full of Sith podcast, and you can find me there, um, those two are about even in my Star Wars analysis. And I write about Star Wars for sci-fi and how stuff works and StarWars.com and um, Slash Film Now too, and, and just everywhere. But if you go to Swankmatron on Twitter and follow me there, you'll be sure to catch all of the Star Wars musings I've got one way or the other because I'll post links to everything. You also have Phothentics with Holly. Yeah, yeah, we do uh, Phothentic History, which is also a very Star Warsy, uh, uh, a very Star Warsy podcast. About half the episodes uh, get into we do fake history on Phothentic History uh, from our nerdiest passions. So, like our very first episode was taking the Battle of Hoth and deconstructing it, like historians might deconstruct a World War II battle, and that's just sort of the tone of the show moving forward. The Jedi Council episodes were pretty fun recently. Yeah, I know. Those were a lot of fun. I learned a lot researching those, actually, um, because you're trying to, to track down little scraps of information and all the different source books they have. And when you do that, it paints a picture much larger than we usually get to see at once. So putting it all together is a lot of fun. How on earth did you find minute notes from meetings? Um, <laughs> Where did that come from? So that's sort of like an inside gag that Holly and I have where, like, if you look up the biography of some of those Jedi Council members, like, the only times you see them are they were at, you know, like, if you go look on their Wikipedia pages or Wikipedia pages, right, it's just like, he was present at this meeting, he was present at this meeting, like, no one knows what he do did because he doesn't have any stories. Right. But we do have the record that he was at all those meetings. And in on the history show, um, it's like on Holly's history show, because she does stuff you missed in history class, like meeting minutes and financial records and stuff like that. Are, they're really important um, pieces of the historical record, even though people at the time might not have thought of them as such. Yeah. And so we just sort of adapt that idea when, you know, in Star Wars, when we when we have it, because I, I think it's funny, but it's also true and that that's all we had of them. <laughs> that's good. That I, I would not have thought to look there, but it, it definitely is a record. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, now it's time to hear from you. You can email us your thoughts on 
the themes of Rogue One. And you can do that at moonjockeyspodcast at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at moonjockeyspod. You can follow me at Balls and Play. Next week, we'll be talking about the top five scenes of Rogue One with Jared and Mark from Podcast 2187. Uh, thank you for listening, and until next time, may the Force be with you always. <laughs>